We have a reading today in the book of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 15 through 25. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For the day that you do eat of it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is good, not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heaven and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from him, the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the word of God. Amen. Thank you, Will. This morning, I want to talk to you about the secrets of a delightful marriage. I want to talk to you about the secrets of a delightful marriage. And, you know, that's not language I usually use. You know, I'm not used to using the word delightful. You know what I mean? It sounds a little too, uh, I don't know, British. You know, like I never say, oh, what delightful McDonald's we just had, you know. Like I usually say, man, that was, that was awesome or, you know, that was phenomenal. Uh, but... I think delightful is the right word to use because when we come to Genesis chapter 2, we're in the Garden of Eden. And we're looking at the very first man and woman who became a husband and wife. And the meaning of the name Eden is delight. This is a place of delight. And this marriage is a delightful, wonderful, glorious thing that happened. And so that's why I'm titling this message, The Secret to a Delightful Marriage. Now, I don't like using the word secret either because I don't think that God is purposely hiding from anyone what are the secrets to a good marriage. In fact, I think what God has revealed about marriage and human relationships is out there for everybody to have. But the problem is, of course, that we live in a fallen world and both we, you and I as individuals, and our society and our culture suppresses what should be obvious and a part of creation and a part of our normal relationships. And so church is a rehabilitation center. The Bible rehabilitates us according to the, according to the way God created things. The Bible gives us the foundational and seminal elements of life again. And it reminds us, no, no, this is the way to do it. Listen. The things we have to talk about on Sunday morning from the Word of God, they're not normal to culture all the time. But I want you to remember that what's normal in our culture is usually what's broken in our culture. Can I get an amen? What's normal usually leads to brokenness, usually leads to division, usually leads to hardship. Now, a delightful marriage... Even for the best of us, listen, even for the most godly people who've been around in the church forever and they know all this stuff like the back of their hand, a delightful marriage is very hard to come by, true or false. We all have seasons of ups. We all have seasons of downs. 
We have, we have times in our marriages when everything goes really good and, and everything's flowing. And then we have times in our marriages when we're under attack and when it's very difficult not only to go along but to get along while we're going along. Marriage is very difficult. And the other thing I want to communicate is that for some of you, you're looking to get married one day. Maybe you're single or you're divorced and you're going through divorce recovery or whatever. The, these principles that I'm about to share are very useful for you. And so I want to reveal to you from Genesis 2 the secrets to a delightful marriage. And you're like, well, dadgum, man, that's a pretty big promise. What are those secret things to a delightful marriage? Because I'm after a delightful marriage. If you're like Sherry and I, you want a good marriage. And so the first principle that we learn about a delightful marriage from Genesis chapter 2 is really very simple. God is ultimate. Marriage is not. This is a very important principle. God is ultimate, marriage is not. In our culture, people think, oh, finding the perfect person or finding the complete product, that's the secret to my happiness. That's the secret to my joy and my peace. And what Genesis 2 tells us is that that's not true. There is no human being in your life, no matter how beautiful or voluptuous or tall or dark or handsome, who can feel what only God can feel. Look at Genesis chapter 2 and look at verse 7. It's so insightful. It says this, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And of course, we note there in verse 7, the name for God, it says the Lord God. In Hebrew, Yahweh Elohim. In chapter 1, Elohim, just the general name for God, just kind of general, transcendent, universal God, is used 35 times in Genesis 1. Never do you get Yahweh. Never do you get Lord God. But here in Genesis chapter 2, what you have is a recapitulation. It's going back to the sixth day of creation, and it's taking a closer look at the formation and the creation of Adam. And what it's saying is, is when it calls God Yahweh, that's his covenant name. That's his relationship name. That's the name he uses only with the people that he has an intimate relationship with. And so it zeroes in and it says, look at how close God is to Adam. He is Yahweh Elohim to Adam. He is coming into covenant with Adam. He, he, this God, is the ultimate spouse to Adam. As a matter of fact, when it says that he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, we're uncomfortable with this language, are we not? I mean, it's somewhat odd. God creates this jar of clay out of the dust and he makes mud and he, and he begins to shape it and then it says and it gives us this picture that God is face to face with Adam that God is is as close as this how many of y'all would really enjoy doing mouth-to-mouth resuscitation all right now we might be willing to do it if it would save somebody's lives although if it's Isaac he's dying I'm not going to do it <laughs> yeah it's 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 a it's a it's a yeah we're now very uncomfortable, right? Mouth to mouth, that's what's happening here. It's that close. We could almost call it a kiss, except for he breathes the breath of life into the nostrils, but it's very intimate. It's very close. It's very passionate. 
You know, I want you to know that when God created you, he didn't create you for religion. God created you for relationship. God didn't create you to walk around with some set of beliefs that you adhere to. He created you so that he might come on the inside and penetrate your heart and shape and form you. God wants to be in relationship with you. God wants to be in covenant with you. God wants to breathe life into you. And no one can breathe life into you except for God. I asked my wife one time, we were talking about our first kiss, and I thought it was really great. You know what I'm saying? In fact, I'll never forget it. I took her home after that particular date. Uh, If my daughters are listening, it was 15 dates in to our courting. (laughs) And I I remember I watched her to the door. I knew. We both knew the whole night. We were like, this is the night. This is the night. We're going to throw down a kiss tonight. You know what I mean? And and I remember I I I walked, well, at least that's what's going on in my head. And I, I walk her up to her apartment, and we stop, and I look at her, and man, I mean, I lay, I lay, just wow, all right? It was not English, it was not drinking tea, it was French, amen? And, uh, and then I walked away, and I looked back, and she was still looking at me, and I went back, and I kissed her again, right? So it was like two one kisses, first kisses, you know? And, and, and so I thought it was really great for years and years and years. In fact, 15 years of marriage, we get into this. And I'm like, what about our first kiss? That was great. And, and she was kind of like, well, it's kind of like what Ruth Graham said about Billy Graham. I felt like I was going to get swallowed that night, you know? <laughs> the truth is, is that no human kiss can give you what God's breath of life can give to you. Nobody. Sociologists refer to a phrase called the romantic solution in secular culture. And what's happened in secular culture is we've decided that we're not going to believe in God anymore. We've decided that we're going to push aside the Bible, Genesis, creation, creator, all of that language. We've decided that's archaic and primitive and it's out of date. Nobody believes in that stuff anymore. But what the romantic solution is, is it points to the fact that human beings still have a need to feel like that they're transcendent. They still have, they still have a need to feel like that they have meaning in this world. They still have a need to, for, their, for their existence to be justified in the grand scheme of things. And so what the romantic solution is, now that we've gotten rid of God... We've decided that we're going to go choose romance as the way to justify our our existence. We're going to choose another human being. If I can find the perfect, complete product, then that person can fill my void. That person can justify me. That person can give me meaning in this world. That person can make me feel like that my life means something. And you know what happens? It breaks. Because nobody can be God but God. Nobody can put you in your home or your garden or your job as a complete person filled with God except for God. And when we come to our marriages or our relationships or our dating and we say to each other, I need you to feel my divine need, my divine imperative in my heart. I need you to be the perfect person. You know what we end up doing to that person? We crush them. Our expectations are too high. And in my own life, if you're like me, you know what happens to me? One of two things happens to me under this point. Either I feel like I should be the Messiah of my home, the God, the Christ of my home, who fills everybody's needs, who's the master of the living room, who's the most important thing. Everybody should serve my needs and meet my needs. You exist for me, kids. You exist for me, wife. Bow down and worry. I don't really say this. You understand. Everybody's like, wow, this is really strange. 
But sometimes I get a God complex, and you know what I do when I have a God complex? I become pushy. I push. I push. You've got to perform for me. You've got you to, see, in my ego. Or, on other days, I'm so needy, and I'm so in need of a Savior that I come to my wife, and I come to Sherry, and I say to Sherry, I say, if, if you don't meet my needs, I'm not going to feel sufficient. I'm not going to feel big enough. I'm not going to feel important enough. I really need you to meet all of these needs. And so, and so what happens then when I want her to be God and my Savior in my life is I get needy, too needy. But what we've found in our life is that when our relationship with God is working, and it's not perfect. We, we don't have a perfect marriage, but we have a pretty good marriage. And what we've learned is, is that when God is God, then we're able to serve each other. We're not as needy. We're not as pushy. And we can freely love each other in an environment not of high expectations, but of love and intimacy and joy and peace. I'm one of the most happily married persons I know, and I can tell everybody here, marriage is not enough for me. I have a wonderful wife. She has a pretty good husband. And, but we're not enough for each other. What's key to our life, what's central to our life is God. And you're like, well, how can I keep God as the ultimate spouse in my life? How can, I, how can I continue to maintain His centrality, His supremacy, His greatness breathing life into me? And what you do is you come down and you look at first verse 9. Let, go to Genesis 2 and verse 9. I love these verses. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Jump down real quick to verse 16. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in that day you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now it's very important that you understand two things. First of all, these trees are in the middle of the garden. Everybody say in the middle. Notice that Adam is not the middle. Eve is not the middle. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was the one who said about this text, he said, you know what? It was good that those trees were in the middle of the garden because man discovered for the first time he was not the center of his universe. He was not the center of his home. He was not the center of his church. That in fact, he had a physical reminder, a physical manifestation that what was the center of his life was God. What the center of his life was a decision he had to make every single day. Will God be God or will I choose my own independence? We ask ourselves, why would God give him the option? Why is there this tree where he could actually choose evil? Why would God give him that option? And the reason why is because without the choice, love is not possible. Without this moment of, are you going to be loyal? Are you going to worship? Are you going to praise? Are you going to put the real God on the pedestal? Are you going to put yourself on the pedestal? Without that decision, worship and love is not possible. 
And what we have to do, in fact, Martin Luther called the the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he called it Adam's church. It was his altar. It was sacramental, not magical. It was sacramental. It was a physical manifestation that would display what's going on in Adam's heart. And every day he would walk by those trees and he would say, do I believe in God or not? There was nothing magical in the fruit. This is not Disney, you know, animation. It was as soon as he chooses evil, he's chosen to separate himself from God. You and I, every single day, to keep God as the ultimate spouse. Listen, there's no set of beliefs you can adhere to or sign some covenant on some piece of paper or get some document from the church or get some holy water from a priest. There's nothing that can give you a relationship with God and a relationship with God is a daily reality and we go to the altar and we say, God, help me. Help me, God. Help me to love you. Help me to love you in the middle of my home. Help me to love you in the middle of my marriage. Help me, aid me in my temptations. Deliver me from evil. Deliver me from the evil one. Jesus said when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from the evil one. The tree is an altar. You got to go to church in your home. You got to go to church in your closet. You got to go to church on your own and you got to go to church in such a way to where you don't need the other to go to church with you. It is just you and God you got to be a man that says, unless you breathe the breath of life into my life, I am done. And you know what's the coolest thing about the Bible? You fast forward. You go all the way into the New Testament. You hit Jesus. And what Jesus says is, I came into this world because you're decayed and you're imperfect. and, And you're all messed up. Listen, whoever you're married to is messed up. Can I get an amen? Ladies, you can say amen. Men, you cannot. You're messed up, your husband or wife is messed up, and if you had babies together, they're messed up. And Jesus looks at us, and he says, despite the fact that you're messed up, I'm going to come into your world, and I'm going to be your savior and your hero, and I'm going to come into your world, and 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 I'm going to fulfill the law of God in your place. I'm going to be the second Adam. I'm going to do what the first Adam couldn't do. And he dies for our sins, and he rises on the third day. Now watch what he does in John chapter 20. This is so awesome. John chapter 20 and verse 20. After his death and resurrection, it says this. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. In other words, he showed them the cross. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord, and Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. In other words, we needed to be recreated. We needed to be reborn And we needed God to come back and breathe into us again. And when we allow Jesus to give us that Holy Spirit and we become filled with his gospel that he died for us, he he rose again on the third day, then we have the most fundamental needs in our life met, our God, divine imperative of our heart, the, 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 the everlasting, eternal void that's in our heart is filled by the Holy Spirit. And then we can go to our spouse and say, you know what? 
I've got good news for you today, honey. You don't have to be God. Because my God's already come. And you know what? I can now serve you, and I can love you. And you know what? I can even cover some of your faults that are minor things. And when I have to talk to you about some big faults in your life, I can do it with confidence and humility. Because you know what? We're just working on this together. And my life doesn't come down to your performance. My life comes down to worshiping God and helping you worship him. Your conflict resolution becomes more dynamic. Your humility, your confidence, the way you do marriage. When God is the ultimate spouse, then you don't have to be married to the ultimate spouse. Marriage is not ultimate. God is ultimate. That is the message of the Bible. Now, we come now to the second thing. The second two uh, uh, secrets to a, a delightful marriage are really heavily dependent upon the idea that God is ultimate. If God is not ultimate in your life, the rest of Genesis, the rest of the Bible, the rest of the biblical worldview does not make any sense at all. But the second thing is, is God is ultimate. Number two, woman is helper. Woman is helper. The secret to a delightful marriage is when woman is helper. Let's look at verse 18. Go to Genesis 2. In verse 18, it says this, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. By the way, it's the first time that God has said anything is not good about creation. But he says it about the man here. It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And then something interesting happens. He parades all the animals before uh, Adam, right? And, And Adam's naming the animals. Adam has a great day at work. He's totally successful. He accomplishes all of his goals and works a full day. But yet he realizes that, you know, the zebras, you know, the dude zebra's got a lady zebra and the Dude giraffe has got a lady giraffe, and I don't have a lady that's fit for me that corresponds to me. And so it says in verse 20, The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. Fit for him means suitable or corresponding to him in nature. In other words, there was nobody who was uh, a helper who was also equally a human being, as much of a human being as he is. So the Lord God, verse 21, caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with the flesh, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. By the way, verse 22 is where we get our father of the bride. God is the father of this woman. This is his daughter. And he's bringing bringing her down the aisle. He's escorting her down the aisle in marriage covenant and saying to Adam, I'm going to give you my daughter as a gift. This is where we get that from. My girls have asked me many times, Daddy, are you going to walk me down the aisle at my marriage at my, on my wedding day? I was like, if you can find a man good enough for you. You know what I mean? Like, daddies don't give up their daughters easily. The guy's going to come to me and say, can I marry your daughter? And I'm like, can you survive this gun? I mean, this is a big deal. You think Eve is any less important to God the Father than, than, than my daughters are to me? She's way more important. This is a gift. This is a highly prized gift. This is a wonderful gift. 
And, and God is giving Eve to Adam because Adam, although doesn't fundamentally need him to meet divine needs, he fundamentally needs her to meet practical needs. And so God says, this is your helper. Now we say, well, now what's, what do you mean by helper? I want to know what that means. What does it mean woman as and woman is helper? Well, literally, the word helper means to provide support and aid to. That's what it is. To provide support and aid to. Most of the time when the word helper is used to provide support and aid, it's a military support and aid. It's a military support. It's military help. It's a flank. It's the cavalry. It's the, it's the shield sometimes it's compared to. When you, when you watch Braveheart, right, and William Wallace is all painted up, and, and he goes into war against the British, and then he keeps his horses off to the side, and he waves the thing, and then the guys come out and they attack the flank, that's help. That's helpers. That's providing military help and support in war, in battle. What's significant about the word helper let me give you a montage of verses, is it's used to describe God in coming to our help and aid and saving us. In fact, Moses uses the word helper in Exodus chapter 18 and verse 4 when he says that the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. David talked about God as helper all the time, usually in a military context, Psalm 54, 4. Behold, God is my helper. The Lord is the upholder of my life. Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2. I want to share you and I's favorite psalms for sure. I lift up my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Psalm 118 and verse 7. The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph upon those who hate me. Amen. Every man needs a wife that is a helper like that so that he can look at his enemies in triumph because she has come to his aid to support him. She has come to him and she has said, I got bullets in my gun and I'm going to use them to defend you. You and I, we're going to fight together. I'm going to be your shield. I'm going to go into battle. You and I are going to go into battle together and we're going to fight together. We're going to fight the good fight of faith. I'm going to encourage you. I'm going to build you up. I'm going to be, I'm going to be your, your war buddy. That's what it is. You see, the world says, well, to have a great marriage, the secret to a great marriage is not being fighters, but being lovers. Be a lover, not a fighter. Let us not use harsh language. Let us not talk in such bold terms. And you know what God says about each one of us? including ladies, especially ladies. You're not only a lover, you're to be a fighter as well. And the question for every wife is, are you fighting against your husband or are you fighting for and with your husband? Because there's one thing I've learned about life is that every husband needs a wife who is going to fight for him in ways he cannot fight for himself. There are things that a wife can do in battle that simply a man cannot do. Now listen, I'm going to tell you, 
This is as true for unbelievers as it is for believers. This is rooted in creation that God made women to be helpers, to be fighters, to be fierce. I have been in church almost my whole life since I was this little. I've been around pastors. I've been around leaders. My best friend was a PK. My, my, my brother married my pastor's wife. I hung out at his house all the time. Sherry and I, we've been in Methodist churches, Baptist churches, Presbyterian churches. We've been in big churches and small churches. We've experienced everything. Every kind of leadership, and as a pastor, I have experienced every kind of woman you can imagine in some capacity or not. And I'm telling you, what I have learned is that women are fierce. Can I get an amen? They are fighters. They are. I'll tell you something else. Women are dangerous. Can I get an amen? Yes. Even women, you know it's true. Because you all have a way to fight. And you all have a way of doing battle with a smile. I mean, I've had women smile at me, and it was like, next thing I knew, it was like, you know what I mean? It was like, yes, pastor, pow, 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 you know, and I was like, I'm going to die now because she just destroyed me. You know what I mean? With a smile on her face. I've got four daughters, and let me tell you something. What they can do with tears is, is napalm, amen? This is the way God has made women. You are fighters. You are fierce. You know how to get things done. Because here's how guys try to get things done. You stand in the way. I'm going to blow you over, buddy. You know, you, that's how we guys do it. We're like, I'm going down this aisle. And if you're in my way, I'm going I'm to I'm track you down. You know, women are like, there are ways around you. You know, it's like cloak and dagger. Here's the thing. God made you like that. That is good. That is wonderful. That is, that is something that, that you have to decide every day. Am I going to use that capacity, that power, that influence, that, that, that way of doing warfare in a way that's beneficial and supports and, and corresponds and aids my husband, or am I going to use it against him? You'll always be the neck that can turn the head. Amen? And you have to decide how you're going to use that power. You'll always be able to come into a church. You can either stir up trouble with a smile on your face or you can advance the gospel with a smile on your face. What are you going to do? God made you a fighter. You're fierce. And I'll tell you something about men. Men are we're tough on the outside. We're so, we, we barely use words because we don't want anybody to realize that underneath that tough exterior is a very sensitive ego. And a deep need to be encouraged. Underneath that tough exterior, we often have strong, strong feelings of failure. We have strong feelings of insensitivity, but we don't let anybody see that. And only a wife can get underneath that exterior and come in there and say, you know what? I want to encourage you. I'm going to help you. I want to encourage you. I want to love you, not for where you're at, but for where God is taking you. It's like Jerry Maguire. How many of y'all seen Jerry Maguire? Don't raise your hand. You shouldn't admit that in church. I love Jerry Maguire, though. It's got some great lines. I love the line. I love him for the man he almost is. Right? That's fighting, man. I love you for where God is taking you. I want to encourage you. I'm praying for you. You should pray for your husband every day. Sherry's been reading this book called The Power of a Praying Wife, and she's been praying for me for the last month. I'm like, why haven't you been doing this for 16 years? I mean, my life has been changed, Right? And Sherry prays over me every day. May he not be destroyed by the enemy. May the lies of Satan not, not, not reach his heart or his mind. 
and she'll text me, I'm praying for you. Do you know what that does for me? It's amazing. When I know my lady is fighting for me and not against me, when I know she's on my side, she's my shield, she's some bullets, she's a gun, she's an M16, she is a bow and arrow, oh, man, I feel awesome. It's a gift. And you have to decide. you got to ask yourselves, how am I helping my husband this week? How am I being a helper? How am I redoing in his life what God has done in my life? God has been my helper. God came and delivered me from Satan and sin. God came and got mud on his face and was naked up on that cross. And, and by his stripes I am healed. God went to war for me. How can I redo that warrior characteristic of Jesus in my husband's life? How can I deliver him from his enemy? so important women a woman is helper God is ultimate here's servant leader man is servant leader the awesome God the father brings down this awesome helper this beautiful warrior Uh, for him as a gift and in verse 23 Adam is quoted directly for the first time in the Bible in fact it's the first direct quote of any human beings in the Bible and it's a poem (laughs) verse 23 it says then the man said this at last in other words he's like finally we're done with the animals you know what I mean trick the animals I need a lady This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of the man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. This is the language of leadership. And I can, t- I can show you why this is leadership, because what he's saying is, he takes the initiative, he says, this is an awesome gift, this, this woman has come out of me, Paul would say in the New Testament, he says, listen, first there was a man, then there was a woman, the man is the head of the wife, the woman is to submit to her husband, but what you see in this leadership is you see a servanthood, you see a desire to serve her and to be committed to her in faithfulness, in priority, in purity in possession he wants to become one flesh and is called to one flesh now the key for a man to be a servant leader to his awesome helper wife is covenant write that down if you're taking notes write that down because you have the language not only of cherishing uh, his wife but he has the language of covenant He says, this is bone of my bones. In the Old Testament, there's a story with David when he enters into covenant with another group. And he says, you are now bone of my bones, your flesh and my flesh. It is the language of coming into a covenant relationship where individual needs and priorities are trumped by the one fleshness and the relationship. That the needs of the couple is more important than the needs of the individual. That is covenant. You are bone of my bones. You are flesh of my flesh. And covenant relationship and covenant servant leadership is completely different in a relationship in, in marriage than what the world gives us. And what our culture is based on is consumer relationships. Everybody say consumer. 
consumer relationship, consumer marriages, and a consumer relationship is a relationship of exchanges. It's almost economic. Like, if you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back. Uh, If you love me rightly, then I might love you back. What have you done for me lately? A consumer relationship is when you go to the grocery store that's down the street from you, and you know the same teller, and you walk in and you say, Hello, Beth, I see you every time I come to get my milk and my eggs. And you get your milk and your eggs and your other groceries, and you come up, and she says, Oh, it's good to see you again. And you swipe the card, and you do the thing. And that's a, it's a good relationship, but it's a consumer relationship. In fact, if a store moved closer to your home with more products at a better price, Are you going to stay in that relationship with Beth over there at that old grocery store? No. Wouldn't make any sense to do so. A consumer relationship says the most sensible thing to do is to go to the closest grocery store with the best prices that has the products that I want. That is a consumer relationship. Christian covenant is totally different. While most of our relationships are consumer, we have to make sure, and the man takes the initiative on this. The man makes sure that his marriage is rooted in covenant. And what covenant is, is not what have you done for me lately, but I am going to put your needs ahead of mine no matter what you do. (laughs) You are bone of my bones and flesh of my bones. What God has put together, nobody, nothing will separate, including you and whatever you do. Nothing can separate. I'm going to make you a priority and a possession in my life, and nothing will come above that. It's not even possible that somebody could come in between us because we're one flesh. It's not even possible that some other hobby could come in between our marriage. I exist to serve you. I exist to outdo you in service. I exist to give my life for you. That's covenant. That's covenant marriage. That's what God does to us. He says, I'm in, aren't you glad that God didn't enter into a consumer relationship with you and me? <laughs> aren't you glad that the cross is not like some neon sign on a grocery store and it says, yeah, God loves you as long as you have it together all the time. But as soon as God finds a better man, you're out. The new man's in. God's relationship with us, bought with passion and blood, is a covenant relationship unconditional, and God says, I'm going to put your needs and make you a priority even when you don't deserve to be a priority. And God calls every husband to redo in his marriage what Jesus has done in his life. Listen to this from Ephesians. Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. There it is. That's Genesis language. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes it and cherishes it, Just as Christ does the church, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother, hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Uh, The Bible is calling a man to model his leadership role based on the leadership model of Jesus and to redo and to bless his wife and to say, I'm going to love you. And I'm going to love you through a slow process. Listen, what does what Jesus do in our life? He sanctifies us. 
Scholars call it sanctification. Sanctification is the slow process of, of spiritual growth. That's what sanctification is. It's, it's a slow. Everybody say slow. How many of y'all are growing fast spiritually? Raise your hand if you dare. We are all in process. Did you know that? Nobody in here is what they should be. And Jesus comes in, and he not only pays the penalty, but he slowly, lovingly, through service, helps us to slowly grow. And a husband bases his leadership model on that slow process. I'm here for the long haul. I'm going to cover the small faults. You and I, I'm going to cherish you. I'm going to love you. I'm never going to give you a sense to, if you don't perform, then I won't love you anymore. You're going to know that you're a priority. Nothing will come ahead of you. If you think about it, the real secret to a delightful marriage is when two people, a husband and a wife, outdo one another in service. One submits, one serves. They outdo each other in service. And they redo in their life what Jesus has done in their life. You see, that's different than a romantic relationship. A romantic relationship, let's, like, let's pretend like we all got it together. Let's pretend we're, our life is totally together. A religious relationship is like that too. Religion comes to you and says, here's a, here's a set of rules that you need to follow. See, but relationship, covenant, grace, gospel says marriage is a rehabilitation project. Amen? It's a place where we come together and we help each other rehabilitate. Marriage in the home is like a little church of which we are a larger example of. We are the bride of Christ. And you know what this room is? It's an emergency room. It's a room where we come and get healed. It's a room where we rehabilitate ourselves from the world and the culture and all the things that we've been taught. And we slowly grow together. Isn't that what this is? You don't have to be perfect to come to this church. You don't have to walk in that door and say, oh, I've got my life together so I can come to church. No, you can come just as you are. You can work with us. You can come do life with us. And we're going to grow together. And we're going to love you based on where God is taking you, not where you're at. And that's what marriage is. It's a church. You rehabilitate each other. You say, man, I see what God's doing for you. And you're a little ways off. But I see your potential. Just like Jesus is sanctifying and cleansing me, I want to help you. I want to love you and serve you. That is a delightful marriage. I promise you. Listen, God tells us, that we can have a delightful marriage when God is ultimate, when the woman is helper, when the man is servant leader, that is the key. Now, I want to say one thing. This is the end. End right here. Verse 25. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. The point of that verse is not that they were nude. That's a detail. That's not the point. The point is that in their relationship, there was nothing in between them. They were not ashamed. That's the emphatic place. That's the accent. Nothing came in between them intellectually or practically, sexually. Nothing came in between them um, emotionally. They were unashamed. And what we're going to look at next week is how that all goes wrong. It goes terribly wrong. But you see, we're so far from that, aren't we? It's proof that there's evil. It's proof that there's sin. Martin Luther used to say, you know, it's proof of evil that nobody in their right mind would run around in their village totally nude all the time because everybody would look at that person and say, they're crazy because that's proof there's evil. 
because it would be crazy. And what happens in the Bible and the real secret to the whole thing is that when Jesus came into this world and he fulfilled the law and he's dying on the cross for our sins, you know what it says about him as he's dying on that cross? What does it say about his clothes? It says that his clothes are being sold and bought by Roman soldiers. And Jesus was the very opposite of Adam and Eve. Jesus was nude on the cross because he knows that now, if we, were, if we were to stand before God right now without Jesus, we would be ashamed. But Jesus took our place, took our penalty, and he became nude in shame and in guilt on the cross so that when you and I stand before God the Father without nothing on, no money, no cars, no houses, no titles, no jobs, no clothes, nothing to hide from God, Jesus makes it possible, but when that moment happens, we will be unashamed. We'll be like Adam and Eve. There'll be nothing between us and God. You've got to let that gospel penetrate your heart. You've got, men, you've got to let that chip at your ego. Ladies, you've got to let that form your identity. You have to get your beauty from that gospel. You've got to get your identity from that gospel. You've got to get your humility and your confidence from that gospel. That is the real key. The gospel is the power of a marriage. The gospel is the power to make God ultimate. The gospel is the power for a wife to be able to submit and be a helper to her husband. The gospel is the power for a male's ego to be a servant leader. The gospel is the power of God for everybody who believes. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for everyone who believes. And that's what makes God ultimate. That's what makes my wife a helper. And that's what makes me a servant leader.